keep stressing over this job thing because jobs fucking suck jobs do fucking suck that's the 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 like subtitle to our show i think (laughs) that's right really i mean they could they could be so much better it's true like because that's one of those things i feel like with we get it because you know we we get into those spaces with some of the same people that are in like our Mm anti-work and i'm like which kind of anti-work because there's the like utopian thing of like we already have all the automation technology we need to make like fully automated luxury gay space communism like possible right now which i'm like well mm, not really <laughs> not really yeah not quite eventually i mean but not what- what, what I'd really like is to just be like my version of anti-work for myself is like we get conditions set up so that at some point we can all go on a general strike with no demands and just stay at home. <laughs> never, never to return. And I don't know when that's going to be, but we got to try to make a road there. That's where I feel like we're at now. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would like it if uh, I could just, I don't know, do something like this show you know, twice a week and uh, you know do some research, support people with information, kind of like you know in the Discord, and then... Uh, and actually uh, have a fucking thriving situation at home. Yeah, I mean, but, I would love to, I mean, dumb. I have my own plans to escape wage labor, like, personally. But I want. I, that's not really that important in the grand scheme of things. I want to get everybody so they don't have to be doing this shit. Yeah, because, like, <laughs> I feel like our general orientation on this has been, like, the work stoppage, like, anti-work platform is that we should adopt the extremely scientifically rigorous but frankly i actually do think applicable the 42069 work week yes that's right <laughs> absolutely I always think of that it, well because 42069s that's that's how that's how we get it done folks four, day, four, day, four, four days a week uh what is it 20 hours max uh 69 dollars per hour. that's right yeah. hell yeah <laughs> Imagine a, the overtime working your twenty-first hour for a hundred and thirty-eight dollars an hour. <laughs> Hell yeah, exactly. And well, like people uh, will say, "That's ridiculous. How could you possibly do that?" Have you uh, looked at what our economy produces? <laughs> like it's crazy. Cut that shit in half, and we still produce plenty. And you just cut everybody's work week in half to go along with it while still paying them the same. You're basically already there. Yeah. And you know I what's mean, great that's about the that? Real... Is that it reduces uh it re- reduces the chance for workplace injury. It does. Uh, it it like, like it improves people's like people's uh general conditions. I I think that if anything uh it would just uh, be a lot more sustainable. It almost in like I, I don't mean to, to, to do this, but almost in like a Keynesian fashion, you know, because obviously, <laughs> obviously that's not communism. What we're talking about, 42069 is just socialism, you know? Yeah, socialism. <laughs> well, well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a reform. Let's be real about what right. it is. But uh, it has very, very few downsides. And speaking of very, very few downsides... <laughs> to work 
work stoppage, everybody. Your favorite anti-work but pro-worker podcast. Uh, my name is John. I'm Dan. And I am Lena. And we are 100% listener supported, so thank you very much for throwing us a few bucks on the Patreon. If you're not in the Discord already, that's completely free, so just hop on in there. If you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet, just message us on Patreon and we'd be happy to get those to you. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or in the Anti-Work subreddit if you think they would like our content. (laughs) I actually think people might get banned for that considering we're Marxists. (laughs) <laughs> fair enough let's talk about donut workers united <laughs> yeah. yeah so uh long time listeners may remember that last summer i i think our first interview ever maybe mm-hmm. um, if i'm not mistaken we we interviewed workers from voodoo donuts in portland oregon who were working to form a union uh and and this had the what prompted the interview was that workers had walked out in response to conditions at the restaurant that were basically completely unsafe. There there had been a record-breaking heat wave that went across the Pacific Northwest. And of course, with climate change the way that it is, we're probably going to be seeing record heat waves uh, every year (laughs) at this point. So not 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 really a one-off problem. And it was so hot there. I believe like one person even was getting like a nosebleed because it was so hot in the back there. So uh, of course, workers did the right thing and and walked out uh, in protest of unsafe working conditions. And in response to that, the company Voodoo Donuts uh, went ahead and fired a bunch of those workers claiming that they had abandoned their workplace and therefore it was fine for them to be fired. Um, eventually the NLRB ruled that that was illegal retaliation and a settlement was reached, but unfortunately all the disruption around that did definitely appear to impact the workers attempts at having an NLRB election for their union. And unfortunately their election last year ended in a tie, which we have discussed in the past, you know, uh, the house always wins in a tie and the house in the United States is of course the ruling class. So the workers had to wait an entire year to come back and have a new contract vote. And in the meantime, they were able to, you know, get those those firings ruled illegal at retaliation, get a settlement reach, get people back together. And so, like, organizer Mark Medina told uh, Eater.com, that is a direct result of the company being forced to pay settlements. If it's not in a contract, it's not legally binding. Nothing is preferable to a fair contract, end quote. And so, like, pointing out that while they're glad that the NLRB settlement did, you know, force voodoo to roll back some of its illegal retaliation that of course without a union the workers would never really be able to be sure that their rights were being protected yeah and i think that in something that i find to be really inspiring is they filed for another union election as the moment that they could one year later Mm -hmm. and then they won which I mean, like, there are some historical examples of, you know, running elections for many years and then getting things. I think the Smithfield meatpacking plant is the classic example. Yeah, and uh, but but I mean, sometimes it's really hard after you've had that blow to your organizing committee to actually pick it back up and keep moving. Well, uh, apparently these these workers persevered at Voodoo Donuts and have won their election with 73% of the workers in favor of the union on September 27th 
uh, which fucking rocks. I honestly am so happy that they finally have, you know, uh, official recognition of their union. I We have a quote here from worker Samantha Medina, uh, who told Eater, one of our biggest things that we're aiming for is to get rid of at-will employment. This company has a long history of abusing their power when it comes to that. We want to give everyone a fair and equal chance to continue on with this company. And uh, absolutely, I mean, at-will employment should be illegal. It is the default in this country, and that is unacceptable, and I'm very glad that that is a huge sticking point for this union. Yeah, well, and you can really hear, like, the conviction in that statement. They're not going after, like, things that are just kind of, like, the easiest first things that come to mind when uh, people talk about what a union gets you. Going after at-will employment is a really, really smart move. And I think it's an outcropping of the fact that these workers have been radicalized by, frankly, really bad working conditions. I mean, I remember when we talked to them, they were talking about a thermometer on the wall or the thermostat or something in the building that was reading out well over 100 degrees while they were trying to make donuts and it was making, you know, the product was barely usable. The customers were unhappy. The workers were furious. It's like, I think when you've been through that kind of stuff as a team and you come out of it organizing, it really galvanizes you in a way that's, that's hard for the company to, to break. And, uh, the company, I mean, they keep throwing petty little insults back at the union. They couldn't resist attacking them in their statement following the election, which of course called the union a third party and mentioned their level of disappointment. But these workers, you know, clearly are ready to continue to fight them and have even set up a support fund to help workers with any retaliation during this long struggle for that first contract. Yeah. So, you know, hats off, huge congratulations to the workers at, at Donut Workers United. Really glad to see, as you were highlighting there, Lena, this, this story of perseverance from these workers. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess with our next follow-up, we talked last week about a San Francisco airport strike where all of the different food workers in well is it more than just food workers because is it also shops or is it just food i think it's just food service it's primarily food service yeah Mm -hmm. workers at the san francisco airport had gone on strike and after two days the company buckled and gave in (laughs) to their demands and uh so with that uh, workers have nearly unanimously ratified their new contract with a 99.5% member approval uh, with raises of $5 an hour, a 30% raise over the previous average of $17 per hour. The workers won a $1,500 bonus. Healthcare premiums entirely covered by the company, including dental and vision, uh, and also an increase to to the union pension plan. And then one of the other things is that they have a retention agreement that, like, if, say, one of the food locations closes and another one opens, they actually have to rehire from the pool of workers that uh, Mm -hmm. had previously worked there, basically creating an additional level of job security for all of these workers. Yeah, I mean, it's really impressive, and I think it speaks volumes that after two days without these food service workers, the airport was willing to turn around and be like, all right, $5 an hour raise, Uh, we'll give you vision and dental, we'll just fucking give them to you, and here's a $1,500 bonus, just please, for the love of God, keep making little shitty pieces of hibachi steak. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like, one of the things I kept thinking about this is, like, the airport is such an interesting 
environment for there to be a strike because it's so different than so many other working environments. And I couldn't help but think that like, what do we hear? Like, so when we use, if if you're on Twitter or if you're on social media generally, and you follow a lot of journalists, you probably see two main types of posts from most mainstream journalists. Uh, The the first post is whatever they're writing about. And the second post is complaining about whatever's going on in the airport. They're traveling Mm -hmm. through. (laughs) So (laughs) like, I have to imagine that, part of the influence here is that the people that are frequently using the airport, not just on like a, you know, once in a while, but the people that are there, like going there all the time because they travel a lot are also probably the same people that are going to be very vocal if they can't get their coffee or their beer Mm -hmm. or their like $27 breakfast sandwich or whatever it is that they're buying. (laughs) So like this strike I think has that combination of showing where you've got a a strong union where there's like unanimous, essentially unanimous vote to go on strike, a huge protest where a bunch of people got arrested and lockstep like uh, agreement to have the strike go forward with a very vocal and prone to complaining like customer base Mm -hmm. that is also going through what is pretty much a hundred percent of the time, a very stressful uh, environment to be in. Cause like, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Cause I don't really like flying, but I feel like generally like the airport itself, like is a really like you, people aren't there cause they love like flying. They're there cause they're trying to get from one place to another. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, and also you can't bring so many things through the TSA. Right. I mean, to show up there and be like, Oh, and there's no food. Uh, I hope that you can sustain yourself on a single bag of peanuts. You know. yeah. yeah, well, it's it's like it brings a lot of people over to your side. Maybe people who already would have been on your side, like, you know, hungry families with a bunch of kids who are like, oh, great, now I got to pile into a taxi and, and have them right. run through a McDonald's or something. But it also gets like Brett Stevens on your side on his way <laughs> yeah. on a plane back into JFK because he can't get a Cinnabon from his friend Greg, <laughs> the friendly Cinnabon guy. And he's going <laughs> to, you know, he's going to lose his fucking shit about it. And it's like, you know, he's a reprehensible piece of garbage, but it whatever gets power in the workers hands, whatever puts the pressure on the company, we're happy to see. Yeah. And, and I, and like these, I just want to underline it. These are huge wins. Like, mm-hmm. and that $5 an hour raise, this is a two year contract. This isn't like some six year deal where it works out to like a dollar an hour every year. They will have that $5 raise in really less than two years, which like that's enormous. If you were making $17 an hour, now you're making, $22 an hour. That's a $10,000 a year raise. That's like, huge. That so kicks good. ass. And that's, you know, that results with like the reactions that we're seeing from, from folks about this contract. So we have like, um, April as who's a cook at the Budin bakery cafe at the airport who told local news station KRON, this victory is more than I ever dreamed of. I have six kids, and this raise will help me to support them. And with the health care that we won, I can cover all of them for free. I'm so proud we stood up for ourselves because everything we won will help me give my family a better life. Hell yeah. 
And then we, I mean, we also have another statement from Anand Singh, who's president of Unite Here Local 2, who said, this victory shows the world that fast food jobs can in fact be good family sustaining jobs. And it's all because workers had the courage to strike. After three years without a raise, SFO's fast food workers were tired of working two or even three jobs just to survive. So they took their lives into their own hands and won a better future. And I fucking love that energy. I mean, and I, I, I love to see that people really get like, on this show, there are so so many kind of like tempered wins that we get to right. talk about where like something was won and it was important and we don't want to downplay it, but we do also want to talk about the, the issues with it. And this one just seems like a straight up fucking win. And I think it's really powerful to straight up fucking win against the airlines because over the past couple of years, they've become what? Like the number one or two most heavily subsidized industry in the country. Like the government yeah, has spent over like that. They've been giving them money directly and they've been giving them like zero passenger contracts. And besides shit. oil and pharma. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, no, I totally agree because there are, as you said, there's so often there's like, the union has to give something up in order to get something more important and we, or, or maybe maybe it's a decent contract, but it could have mm-hmm. been better and there could have been more democracy. Like, the, the Unite Here had an 80-person bargaining committee for this, which that, like, uh, look, I don't have statistics on how large most unions' bargaining committees are, but I'm pretty sure they're usually quite a bit smaller than 80 people. I mean, 20 um, is a pretty big bargaining committee. I'm 80 is really impressive, honestly. <laughs> like this, they more or less had like 1% of the bargaining unit w- was in the bargaining committee itself, mm-hmm. which I mean, that that's, I think is, is pretty cool. Like, and like, so when, like, it's funny cause they, they ended the strike and, I, and at first I was like, well, it was only two days. Maybe they didn't, maybe it was like a quick victory. Maybe it's not going to be that great. But one of the things that, you know, before they released the terms that made me a bit more optimistic was the fact that it's an 80 person bargaining committee and they unanimously recommended the new tentative agreement with. And so then when we see the actual terms come out, it's real easy to see why, like essentially everyone in the union voted for the contract. Like these are mm-hmm. unambiguous big wins by the power of these workers, you know, showing that <laughs> If it weren't for them, these airports wouldn't be able to function. So hats off to the workers of Unite here. Incredible win. Absolutely. And in a much more ambiguous situation, (laughs) we're going to be following up on the train situation here in the United States, where the machinists who we were, you know, saying could be the first people to kind of start the strike wave have reached a tentative agreement, kicking the can down the road in the cooling off period down to December. Um, there is so much news, but also so little news at the same time on this. They, yes. uh, <laughs> uh, the TA, um, the, the machinists had signed this new TA in line with those uh, signed by the BLET and Smart TD. On Tuesday, September 27th, uh, it, it still remains possible that the workers will reject the TA, but even then, the strike, again, has been pushed off until December 9th. Uh, I guess a few other updates of coming voting for like other potential disruptions is the American Train Dispatchers Association uh, of about 2,500 members will be voting on October 4th on the TA that they had. The Brotherhood of Maintenance and Way employees with 35,000 employees will be voting on October 10th. And, and I mean, like, that... so. You know, that decision in particular is going to be really, really important. Yeah, because with BMW being the third largest union, 
if they vote to the, how they vote, I think is going to be an interesting barometer. Cause like if the ATDA is voting tomorrow, but they're again, like they, they've only got about 2,500 members, very small, uh, union. So, uh, I'm not necessarily expecting them to be the ones to launch the nationwide rail strike, although it's possible. Um, but BMW, cool. very big, 35,000 people, even if they, cause like, It'll be like kind of reading the tea leaves for the big big two unions because, like, they could vote to reject it outright. And if they vote to reject it, that will launch a strike. Um, mm-hmm. If they don't, if they re- vote to accept it, the margin is going to be really important to look at. Because if they, you know, if they vote for the, the contract, but it's 55-45, that could still be an indication that BLET or Smart TD, could, one of those could still reject theirs. And obviously that could happen either way. But I think because it's it's hard for us i feel like to get a good solid really solid picture of where the rail membership is at with all the different pressures because of course we've seen all sorts of stories from rail workers fed up with the conditions they're working under not happy with the tas with the the three unpaid vacation or uh, sick days you have to schedule a month in advance uh, but again, only on tuesday thursday fr- or wait what was right it? monday tuesday wednesday thursday right yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you know, the workers are under massive amounts of pressure to vote to ratify the agreement, both from, you know, leadership of their unions, the federal government, and of course, all the, the business press. So it, it's it's very hard to tell because it's not like we have like, you know, Rasmussen or Gallup out there polling real workers on whether they're going to vote for the contract. So yeah, uh, next week's vote, that BMWE vote, I think is going to be really, really important. So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that one. But yeah. um, transitioning into our new stories for the week, uh, we've got a big strike that launched last week in the cultural sphere where uh, last Monday, the 26th, Workers at the Philadelphia Museum of Art walked out on strike after negotiations over their first contract broke down. Uh, so these workers are organized with Cultural Workers United, which is an affiliate of uh, Ask Me District Council 47. The motherfucking Ask Me. They pick up your garbage <laughs> and shit. <laughs> I, love, I love that meme. It's, that yeah. video is so good. Yeah. <laughs> We're the fucking union. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they... They held a one-day warning strike earlier this past month to be like, hey, uh, we are actually serious about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, we're not kidding. We do want the demands that we're talking about, hoping that that would explain to the management, like, oh, oh, they are actually mad. Like, <laughs> maybe we should actually listen to them instead of being assholes. But that didn't end up working, uh, and the company continued to stonewall the workers on economic issues. And so at the end of August, 99% of union members voted to authorize an upcoming strike. And last Monday, the workers finally launched it. And so union president Adam Rizzo explained the situation to Art News, saying, quote, We were able to clear non-economic issues off the table, and that was really encouraging. We thought we'd wrap up the contract on Friday, but when we got to the economic issues like pay and benefits, the museum said, we won't budge on any of these things. And that's what led us to vote to, uh, on the strike, end quote. Yeah, well, and it seems like when you get stone, well, like, I don't know what non-economic issues they talk, they're talking about in particular, but it's like, uh, there's a reason people think about pay and benefits first. It's because, like, 
those do form the core reason why you go to work in the first place. So it's got to be, it's got to feel really disingenuous for them to be like, okay, we can get all this shit off the table. Let's knock out all the little things. And then it's like, oh, you want a raise and a benefits package expansion. Well, I'm sorry. We are just simply not going to allow any of that. That was, <laughs> that was all wrapped up in uh, you all having time off. You know, yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, so what the museum is offering workers is what they are. They're like, oh, it's an 11% raise. It's, sig- it's a significant raise for workers. Uh, the problem with that is it's an 11% raise spread out over three years. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's 3.6% per year. And workers point out that that's not going to cut it when they already have not received a raise since the pandemic began. So again, this is three years now without a single raise. And so now essentially what they're asking is for a total of six years. So the last three years when the workers got nothing Mm -hmm. and then the three years of this contract that a total of 11% over those six years is a significant raise, which Um, is under 2%. Right. And this is of course, while 11% a raise would barely cover inflation just this year alone and not any of the other years involved in the contract. Um, and additionally, one of the other big things that has been a sticking point for workers is healthcare. Because while the company has offered a you know somewhat expanded way for hourly workers to get access to healthcare, mm-hmm. the problem is that like so many other uh, places in this country, the healthcare plan that's on offer here really it doesn't really cover that much, like because. Like this is actually very similar to situations that like I've seen in, in other places where they they offer health care and they offer two different health care plans, uh, one of which covers pretty much everything and is incredibly expensive and no one can afford it. And the other that has really high deductibles and covers mostly nothing but has cheap premiums. <laughs> so that's the plan that pretty much everyone ends up taking. So like, for instance, uh, Rizzo told WPVI Philadelphia, quote, 90% of the folks in the unit, and that's about 190 people, are on a high deductible healthcare plan. So it means we can't afford to go to the doctor even though we have healthcare, end quote. And like to the numbers here, like the low deductible plan that the company offers that covers much more can cost as much as $3,500 a year, which is well out of the range of people working at the museum. If they're only making $30,000 a year, like that's over 10% of your salary that they're asking to pay for their healthcare. So of course, most people go on the high deductible plan, but then the problem becomes the deductible is so high. You then can't afford to go to the doctor. So it might as well be like, you don't have insurance at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that, uh, I mean, the museum could clearly remedy this by putting all 90% of people on the better plan and then just paying for it because with that many more people on the plan, they would get more of a discount from the insurance company. I mm-hmm. mean, like, but I don't know. That's just some speculation. Um, the, that quote, uh, from Rizzo, uh, you know, he also points out that most workers are heavily, heavily in debt due to the high degree of requirements, uh, to work at the museum and current wages being so low have basically forced so many of the workers there to have two jobs. Uh, workers have made their demands clear saying that the raise must exceed inflation to provide workers with a real living wage. Hourly employees' minimum wage must be set to at least sixteen seventy-five. Senior workers must receive a minimum of five hundred dollars 
for every five years of service, and healthcare costs must come down so workers aren't forced into the uh, high deductible plan that they can also basically not afford to use. And then the museum itself claims that their offer is generous, which, you know, we've heard this one so many times. Uh, at the same time, while they say, oh, no, we can't afford it, they also will never back that up with any sort of evidence. They won't open their books. They won't tell anyone what the actual situation is like. Because, really, this is something that we say, if things really were so fucking tough, it would be very cl- easy to say, hey, this is our budget then uh, this is what we can give. And you know what? People are generally pretty understanding, and I think that that is just something that won't happen under capitalism. But what the workers can look to is how much the museum's chief operating executive, COO, right? That's what it is, COO? Yeah, chief operating officer. Uh, Officer, uh, who makes $400,000 per year. Mm. Like, that's... Clearly, there is money somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Like- I mean, I think we know right where it is, at least in that <laughs> case. And I mean, the workers aren't aren't dumb about this either. Either they followed the money uh, back to City Hall as well, which provides a, a significant amount of financial support to the museum. Which is pretty interesting that it's like, even if it's a you know, partially publicly funded institution, they still can't get them to open their books. I mean. I know this is America and it probably isn't, but it seems like that should definitely be illegal. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's one of those things where you, it would be so easy for cities if they wanted to do this. And and that's the key pit key bit there to just write a law. It's like, look, if you're getting significant funding, put like some sort of a threshold under it. I don't know if you get more than $50,000 from the city or something Mm -hmm. like then you, then like a you have to have a union neutrality agreement i mean that would be a good thing to do and also b you actually have to open up your books so that people can see like how much are you spending on executives versus how much are you spending on your actual staff mm-hmm. and it would be extraordinarily easy for cities to do that but the people who run the cities are the people who are being paid by the rich people who don't want them to do that. (laughs) So uh, that's not likely to happen anytime soon. But thankfully, you know, these folks have gotten a lot of support from the community in Philadelphia. They've uh, protested at City Hall alongside other Ask Me workers uh, just to be like, hey, uh, you're giving all this money to this museum and they're really fucking with the union. Uh, that's messed up and you need to tell them to stop. Uh, and so they've additionally received support from all sorts of other unions across Philadelphia that they've had folks from the Guggenheim union come out to, to show support on the picket line. And so there's been all the, the, the PMA union, which I believe is their at on, on Twitter. They've been posting all sorts of really great, like photos of the picket line and everything really seems like, like spirits out there on the line have been standing strong. I know that they've been uh, pretty viciously making fun of the, the, the union, not the, uh, they've been viciously making fun of the museum's Twitter account, which continues to act as if there is no strike, as if there's never been a strike or any sort of <laughs> union whatsoever, and is continuing to go more like, no, it's going to be, it's great. Everybody come to the museum. We're going to be opening this Matisse exhibit at the end of the month. And they're just like, uh, rich people lending your Matisses to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. You just might want to be aware that all of the actual trained art handlers who, you know, know how to take care of multi-million dollar priceless works of art 
art. Mm-hmm. But those people are all on strike right now. So uh, if you're <laughs> lending your stuff to the museum, they have completely untrained people handling your art. So you might want to talk to them about resolving the strike if you don't want your stuff to get damaged. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, spirits are high in spooky seasons. Good to hear. That's and right. I'm glad to see them fighting. Um, in our next story, we're going to be talking about the expansion of the Trader Joe's Workers United movement uh, to a store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Yeah, I mean, talk about employers who are trying to pretend that nothing's wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no this, this is a real classic case. Uh, so, yeah, the independent union movement has expanded to this store in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and workers have revealed their organizing drive the day after the store fired a black worker organizer for their organizing efforts. And so these workers got together and issued a statement which says, quote, this store, Trader Joe's Williamsburg 548, has a pattern of inappropriately targeting workers of color for discipline. We're asking you to stand with our crew as we work together for the protections and fair working conditions we deserve. And then one of the workers, Kelly O'Hearn, told More Perfect Union why they're organizing, saying, quote, we just want to improve our working lives, be paid a living wage, have benefits such as sick pay, and not have to worry about making a rent payment or not being able to pay for health care. So, I mean, what's interesting about this is that, like, yes, it's a, I mean, it's interesting because it's workers fighting for health care, fighting for better pay, but it's also one of those situations where you have a company with a progressive image who is not Mm -hmm. only being anti-worker but is also being notably racist in the way that they handle their staff yeah like honestly i feel like at this point it's become you know one of the most common themes on the show is covering like hey you know when a company says it has progressive values they are lying Mm -hmm. (laughs) every time they are lying (laughs) because Every time the workers get together and are like, hey, we would like to have a somewhat better situation. They're like, cool. Uh, all of you are fired. Right. <laughs> like that's that's the response from every one of these so-called progressive companies. And and so often, again, this is in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. This is the cle- this is the meme area that people use to represent like progressive areas of this country. And the company has no problem just launching an immediate union busting campaign and starting it off with uh, the racist firing of a black worker organizer. So it's like if you ha- like a, a, if you have some company that's oh I really like shopping at this company because they have this progressive image. That's fine, but just remember that it's like they're a business. They wouldn't be successful if they didn't follow capitalist imperatives. And those same imperatives require them to attack their workers when their workers try and get anything better. So, like, we should never be surprised by this stuff. And that's also why, you know, we have to assume it will happen anytime we see something like this. So, yeah, like the I mean, this store specifically, it actually seems like the workers had done a pretty good job of keeping their organizing on the down low. They had said that they focused on, you know, like one on one conversations outside the workplace to gauge Mm -hmm. who's going to be, you know, amenable to organizing, who's not and who to focus on, who's who's persuadable, who isn't, you know, the basic stuff you always want to do when you're gauging how like how what specific work you're going to have to do if you're trying to form a union in your workplace. And so despite the fact that, you know, there have been two stores that have successfully unionized, of course, we had the one in Hadley, Mass earlier this year being the first store, very quickly followed up by a store in Minneapolis. Well, and, and let's not trade- to forget to pour one out for the uh, beer and wine store that they closed in New York yeah. City just before the workers were about to have their election. 
Yeah, absolutely. And 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 then of course the uh, UFCW had been organizing a store in Boulder, Colorado, but withdrew their election petition after the company launched their intense union busting campaign. So despite the fact that you know this has all been going on, it doesn't appear like Trader Joe's had really stepped up an intense surveillance effort at the store, at least from 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 what I was able to read. But as soon as they found out about it. They like freaked out or like, okay, no, we have to fire people <laughs> right away. Uh, yeah. And uh, oh, well, let's let's start with this black worker organizer. She seems to be very militant and we can probably get away with this. Like, uh, I mean, seems to be the thought process behind it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, their union just filed on Friday, September 23rd. Uh, the worker who was fired, the I guess it was what she was fired the day after. Because usually, what happens is you file, and I think the next day is usually when the company finds out uh, that you filed. And so, uh, but I mean, either way, they fired uh, Jazz, a black worker organizer, uh, who actually was interviewed by Jacobin, and uh, she said. In comparison to Amazon, where workers have to pee in bottles, Trader Joe's seems like a lovely job, but they're giving us the bare minimum above literally the bare minimum. It's calculated that a living wage in New York is $25 an hour because everything is so expensive here, but we have people who've worked in the company for 7 or 10 years, and they're still making $17 or $18 hourly. It feels like a stab in the face, which... I love that kind of shift of the stab in the back to, I mean, it's like, it's not, it's not, you know, covert. It's straight up. Right. We see it. it. It is very, very apparent what this company is doing to people that are supposed to be, that are, that are supposedly loyal, that are supposed to be like ho- upholding the thing that gets you better conditions. You know, you're a hard worker. You put in the extra time, blah, blah, blah. You know, that doesn't actually mean shit when it comes to any really any company but you know especially these so-called progressive companies like trader joe's yeah, yeah. well and the workers uh, didn't lose any time responding to this the sunday after uh, jazz the worker was fired the other workers demanded her reinstatement and asked customers to speak with store managers and let them know that they support the union which is a really really good tactic that we've seen used at starbucks already quite a bit and i think as we see a lot more customer service uh oriented businesses unionizing we're going to see that tactic get used a lot more often yeah, and and you know this is another case. I, I was reminded a little bit of the interview with uh, Vince Quiles, the guy, the guy who's one of the lead organizers at Home Depot, because Jazz was in in her interview with Jacobin explained that you know the classic thing you always hear from companies is like, look, we just we we want to hear feedback from you, uh, and, and we just think a union would come between us, so we just want the workers. If you have a suggestion or a complaint or anything, just come to us and we'll work it out directly. And of course. You do that, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, we see you, we hear you. We're not going to change anything. Fuck off, go back to work." Like, it's the and, classic. And that's, here's the suggestion box, and it's a box that's sitting right over a trash can with an open yeah, bottom. Yes, yeah, 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 exactly. And and because Jazz explained to Jacobin that workers directly raised concerns about pay, benefits, working conditions at the store, but the complaints went nowhere. Again, what a surprise. Uh, and, and they also point out the store has been consistently understaffed, which, again, is what we hear from essentially seemingly every single business in this country now because of the way that all business managers are just trying to have an absolute minimum of labor costs, even if it, like, you know, <laughs> grinds workers into dust in the process. Um, they also point out that 
Additional workers of color have been disproportionately targeted for discipline by management, including refusal to accommodate the fact that many of the workers of color at the store, because like, you know, Williamsburg is in Brooklyn, it's not in Manhattan, but it's still in New York City. It's still a very expensive area to live. And so a lot of the workers at the store, because it's pays so low, have to live two or more hours away in order to get to the store and actually be able to work there. And there's been no accommodation for that of many of these workers. And so... Jazz in her, in her interview with, with Jacobin really summed it up, I thought, with this quote where she said, it's not just about money. We want work-life balance so we can pursue our dreams, so we can pursue our creativity. But we're incapable of doing that because the systems of society prevent it. It's dehumanizing. This new interest in unions shows that we're trying to humanize society and our workplaces, end quote. Certainly, 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 always. Like, it's the thing, I mean, when we're talking about uh, raising up the conditions of some of the lowest paid people, um, or, uh, you know, just, I mean, improving conditions in so many other ways, it is always about improving human society. And, I mean, that does come at an expense of the ruling class, but they shouldn't have a fucking monopoly on this bullshit in the first place. That's right. Well, Absolutely. let's talk about some companies that claim to be in the process of changing human society for the better, but are often, in fact, quite, you know, poised against their own workers and people of the world, just the same way that every other corporation is. And these are companies that make electric vehicles. So we're going to be talking about Rivian, which you may have heard of, but if not, uh, think Tesla, but they only make trucks uh, like Tonka <laughs> yeah. Tesla. And so the, the <laughs> auto industry in general, we're seeing a lot of these manufacturers start to roll out a lot more electric vehicles. And in general, the companies are all trying to trans, uh, transition to an industry where most of the cars are going to be electric instead of gas. The federal government and a bunch of state governments have poured incredible amounts of money and tax incentives into major automakers and smaller companies and Tesla, which is neither of those things, to promote <laughs> domestic development That's of true. electric vehicles. However, despite the rhetoric from our quote, most pro-union president, the fight to make sure that these jobs are union is heating up and with very little of the same government support as Lee Harris reports in an investigation for the American prospect. Yeah. So this is uh, actually a really big, this is a pretty long article uh, in the prospect. Uh, I definitely recommend folks check it out. It's very interesting because it goes into a lot of, because this is like a whole shift in the, the, the industry to, from, you know, essentially entirely internal combustion engine cars to eventually entirely electric vehicles. And so, yeah, this mostly centers around Rivian, but it's an, it's really an industry wide issue. And, and specifically one of the major things that they're talking about in here is this plant that Rivian is, has put together in normal Illinois, um, <laughs> which I can't Most help Midwestern but- place in the world. <laughs> <laughs> So they basically, they renovated an old Mitsubishi plant, which had been empty since Mitsubishi left the U.S. market a few years ago. And to do that, they got $3 million in tax breaks from normal. And uh, they also got $50 million in tax credits if they create 1,000 jobs over the next decade. And so despite getting all of this public funding, 
the company has really focused heavily on trying to avoid union labor as much as it possibly can. So even though all these tax credits, incentives, the whole thing is we are giving these people money so they will create jobs so people who live in this area will have good places to work. But they've the company itself, Rivian, has mostly focused on hiring out-of-state, specifically non-union contractors, to do as much of this labor as possible. And the fact that their biggest investor is Amazon probably points to uh, some influences there. Um, they've the company's been the subject of many OSHA investigations during the renovation of the plant, including fines for not protecting workers from falling objects, which seems pretty important. Um, and additionally. There was an investigation that was run by the Illinois Attorney General and that only happened due to prompting from the local IBEW, so, you know, uh, hat tip to them, that the company was using a complex series of contractors to allow them to use imported labor of Mexican migrant workers to do a lot of the renovation work but not pay them overtime. (laughs) And... So this reminded me a lot about the way that when we talked about um, the, I think it's a Hyundai plant in Alabama that got caught using child labor, they were doing the same thing, using this, we hired a contractor who hired a contractor who hired a contractor, and that's the person who actually hired the, so you have these layers that insulate the company from responsibility, and it's the same thing here where essentially they had a a subcontractor of a subcontractor of a subcontractor bring in the labor and steal almost three quarters of a million dollars in overtime wages from these workers. And the only reason that, that this got found out is because the local IBEW was like, Hey, these guys are getting screwed. And that's also hurting everybody else in the industry at the same time. So we got to, we can't be letting them do this. And so they tipped off the Illinois AG and were able to get all that money back from the company. And of course, Rivian is like, Oh, we didn't, we're so, so we didn't know anything about this. <laughs> we, we would never do anything like this. This was the uh-huh, subcontractor, uh-huh. not us. Yeah, oh yeah. Well then sure. why do you that pay so re- much fucking extra money to hire a subcontractor, to hire a subcontractor, to hire someone uh-huh. to work for you for $9 yeah. an hour? What, what it reminds me of is I don't even know if we followed up on that Hyundai situation, but it was not actually just that one plant that that we uh, talked about that there was a follow-up article a couple weeks later that said that there was a second plant that also had been following falling into those exact same uh, mm-hmm. situations of child labor. And, uh, oh, yeah, it wasn't their fault that time either. Yeah, the systemic, it's not a systemic issue. It's not like the way that subcontracting works out is specifically designed to, I don't know, create more situations where companies can get away with child labor, um, underpaying, massive amounts of wage theft, I guess, again, in this case, with nearly a million dollars in wage theft. Like, I mean, that's that's subcontracting for you. I mean, in terms of seeing like the pattern of misconduct here, it's like, you know, I don't think it's worth getting too paranoid about. You know what they say? Where there's smoke, there's usually just smoke. Don't worry about it. Uh, (laughs) If it it looks like a duck, give it a pass just for today. You know, one bad apple, you can eat one bad apple. It's not a big deal. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 
Absolutely. <laughs> uh, let's. Uh, but, yeah, I see you have a note in yeah, here about so, the most pro-union president in in the history uh, of of the past what ten minutes. I don't know. I guess I don't know. There, well, I don't know what, there's yeah, no, I mean, that's, there's no. We talking about that really. guy from the White Wing in the nineties? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so like the recent you know climate bill in giant air quotes, the Inflation Reduction Act, the fakest bill ever passed. Um, was touted as a big win for U.S. workers, talking about how it's going to create all these new green energy jobs, and it may create some. Um, but a lot of those jobs are not going to be union, and a big part of that is the fact that originally th- there was language in the bill that required any company getting money from it to agree to neutrality about unions being formed for the work, a- as well as having tax credits for automakers specifically for using union labor to build cars uh, that was stripped out of the bill very early in its life and did not make it when the bill was actually passed. So the only thing that was left in the bill for any union protections was it does require prevailing wage uh, protections for construction, but not for the continuing operation of any of these factories. So like there really isn't much in there that does anything to help workers and So it's been left to the UAW to be the ones to try and be like, okay, well, uh, the government, we we, we spent all this money lobbying the Democrats to help us, and the Democrats did the same thing they do every time, which is say, thank you very much for all the money. We will now do absolutely nothing to help you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the UAW has to go back to doing the actual organizing work on the ground. Because one of the things that they pointed out is that like when Mitsubishi was there, the jobs in that plant were good union jobs. And so their goal is, of course, if Rivian is going to be building trucks there, that those should also be good union jobs. And right now, they're not. And workers at Rivian, it's funny, so many of these complaints that they talk about are like, they remind me so much of the stuff that we hear from Tesla, although not the extreme racism that we hear about at Tesla. Oh, well, thank God for that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, the, the racism here is pretty covert. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of racism, but it's it, it it doesn't seem like that was the standout like at Tesla. Gotcha. Um, but the the workers have talked about the fact that the schedules of the plant are currently very chaotic because Rivian, being you know a, a relatively new company, seems to be having some growing pains about figuring out their scheduling and logistics. So if they're they're run into situations where not enough parts have actually arrived at the plant to build the trucks so they'll just be like uh, no work for this shift because this stuff hasn't shown up if you don't have pto you're not getting paid um which you know <laughs> is understandably very disruptive to the workers lives because if you think you have i mean maybe it's not nine to five maybe you're on second shift maybe you're on third shift mm-hmm. I, like but you're like okay i got a schedule this is my job and now they're just like, maybe you have a shift. Maybe you don't have a shift. Who knows? Spin the wheel of poorly planned logistics and yeah, find actually, out. Actually, I think that this actually prompts one of my favorite aspects of a union contract, which is a guaranteed minimum number of hours for a scheduled mm-hmm. shift. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes you do show up to work and they send you home early. Uh, sometimes you show up at the beginning of the day and they send you home. I had a job where when I would show up, there was a two-hour minimum. Uh, I know that in some jobs, it is up to four-hour minimums. Uh, I'm sure that there's maybe even some six-hour minimum contracts, but that means that 
if they want to send you home, they still have to pay you at least some money for the day, regardless of whether or not you had to do any work. I mean, I don't know. I've at, at that point, I'm like, I don't care. Make me sweep for an hour or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed to what currently happens, which is they show up, they get told, "Oh, there's no work. Go home. We're not paying you shit." Um, mm-hmm. Which really sucks for workers. They also point out that a lot of the jobs at the plant cap out at $23 an hour, which for manufacturing work is really fucking low. Mm -hmm. Like that's, I think that's the entry wage at John Deere. (laughs) Um, So like they point out that, you know, like a lot of workers, if you are are looking for this to be your career, if you're going to be there more than, you know, five years, if you're looking for this to be long-term, you can get more than that, like, if you work at a fast food place for 10 years, like in this area, than working at this, you know, electric truck manufacturing company. So, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately it looks like, so there is a union drive at the plant by the UAW, but from the details in this article, it seems like they're running into some issues with the UAW organizers, basically trying to run your standard top down organizer centric campaign rather than a rank and file one. And that has run into some headaches, like specifically, for instance, the the workers who are organizing actually at the plant have said that, you know, they appreciate the support from the UAW, but that by far their most effective actions have been ones that have been organized on the ground by the workers themselves. Like for instance, they, they talk about how the company tried to initiate mandatory overtime and workers on the floor right then organized a snap strike to protest that and were able to actually get the company to back off. But there have also been actions where, you know, the, the UAW brings in workers and tries to hold rallies and stuff, but that hasn't necessarily drummed up as much enthusiasm as when it's the actual workers in the plant running the campaign themselves. So like for instance, uh, Anakin Fox, who is a worker at the plant explains saying, quote, it's interesting that when they take a step back, it works. But in the actual infrastructure of our organizing committee, when they're very involved, it was a little harder for us to get work done, end quote. So, yeah. Well, and this brings us to our campaign to get the fucking UAWD <laughs> elected. Uh, I right. hope that if any UAW members are, are listening, and I mean, if you've been listening for a while, you probably uh, have been following when we've been talking about Sean Fain and his presidency. Uh, to really shift the thing away from the administration caucus that currently exists in there, which uh, what they were they, they did something. What was it? Uh, corruption? Was it uh, <laughs> the thing that forced the government to come in and allow the rank and file to even vote for leadership? Wow. Uh, so yeah, if you are a UAW member, make sure you're out there voting for a UAWD candidate. And uh, and which so, are who are campaigning under UAW Members United? Is the that's right? They're, they're yeah. So I mean, if you want this, uh, if obviously they're rep- they're the this is a real representation of workers saying, "Hey, when we do rank and file organizing, it works." Think emoji. And when the administrative caucus comes in, it kind of doesn't. Uh, so you know. Yeah, because like what Lena's referring to is that like the UAWD actually put forward a a proposal at this year's like convention of the UAW specifically calling for rank and file led organizing at EV plants 
uh, around the country, feeling that that would be the most effective way to get these plants organized and into the UAW. Uh, the administration caucus refused to even bring that resolution forward for a vote. Uh, extremely democratic move there. Uh, so, I, I mean... And we can get into some of the problems with the way that the current caucus in the UAW has tried to handle EV organizing. So, like, for instance, currently GM's, GM's battery production is at its Brownstown, Michigan facility. And workers there are under a really weird arrangement where they pay dues to the UAW, but they're not covered under the national contract. They are under a second-tier arrangement, unfortunately. So... Rather than getting the same benefits as the other UAW members who'd been working there longer, the workers at this battery production plant in Brownstown, Michigan, are on a are, are all on a second tier, making much worse money with much worse uh, benefits. And the UAW has 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 signed several similar agreements since 2020, including one at a GM battery plant in Spring Hill, Tennessee. And when the provisions of the deal signed in Spring Hill became public. The leadership of that UAW local, local 1853, all resigned. That's always a good sign. (laughs) Yeah, largely because of member backlash to being like, wait a minute. So we got our union, which is supposed to be the hard part. But now we're being forced onto this really shitty tiered contract. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, you know, the workers feel like they could do much better and getting something more like what so many of the other workers, even other... GM UAW members are getting right. Well, and, and the so- issue with this also isn't that there's just two tiers to this contract. It's that there's a main tier, and then there's like a billion miscellaneous secondary tiers that yeah. different random groups of workers are covered under in different shoddy, you know, in in, in different ways that are each inferior to the national contract in some way. Right. And that's one of the things that, you know, we've argued when we, especially when we talked about rank and file unionism, when we talked about the history of U.S. unionism. Like one of the core things with unions in general is you're trying to take workers out of competition with each other Mm -hmm. because that just puts everybody in a race to the bottom. And by having all these little separate agreements, you are undermining that and and keeping it. Even if they're in the same union, you end up with workers competing with each other. So like, I mean, Jonah Furman was quoted in this piece in the prospects saying, quote, as you let GM go to lower tier jobs, you don't lose the union jobs, but you turn them into something like meatpacking, end quote, referencing a similar problem with meatpackers where like the jobs may technically be union, but workers are split into all these company by company and low and tier by tier positions. And they end up competing against each other and end up not getting the benefits they should be getting out of having a union. So in the current, the UAW, like, Administrative caucus is responding to this in the same way that we've seen so many business unionist leaderships in unions across the country respond to things, which is to say, look, the problem we're running into is there's there's so much competitive pressure on U.S. companies and U.S. companies are so aggressive about union busting that we need to get a solution from the federal government. So what we're going to do is we're going to get the Democrats to pass a law enforcing sectoral bargaining in auto manufacturing. Which yeah, fucking right. <laughs> yeah, like I'm sorry, that's never going to happen. The, the Democrats are, are are going to do no such thing. Uh, it would be cool if they would do that. They won't. I mean, how, how are you going <laughs> like, to figure out how to give them more money than GM? It's just right. not happening. We like, can't even get them to say the words "proact." They won't even say the yeah. words. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I don't know, and I mean, just to so to 
to to wrap up like some of this, like I, there was a quote in here that I just thought was spot on, like Scott Holdison, who's a UAW electrician at Ford in Chicago, who told the prospect, quote, it's baffling to think that leadership relies on government to help them. We need to do the hard work ourselves, end quote. It's like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it's like, you don't even have to get into like, the Marxist theory of the state to explain why the Democrats are not going to help these folks. You just look at the last 40 years, 40 years, at least the UAW has poured and, and, and other U S unions have poured millions of dollars that workers have just said, yes, we want to have more pro union work like people elected. We need to get a better situation. So we'll give you some of our money uh, outside of the dues fund to have this political action fund that goes out and it gets Democrats elected. And what happens every fucking time <laughs> the Democrats don't do anything to help workers. So like the idea that they're just going to keep doing that and suddenly this time it's going to work. Like, cause that's one of the things I think is so frustrating because you'll have reformers like UAWD, like people who are open socialists and they'll be pointed, Oh, this, the stuff you want to do is ridiculous. It's unrealistic. We, you know, we have to be realists about this. And if the people that are saying that are the same ones saying we need to keep doing the same thing that hasn't worked for 40 years. So like <laughs> it is, it is them who are being ridiculous and it's the people that are fighting for change who are the ones being reasonable. So like, it's very frustrating to see that like these jobs, there's no reason that these jobs at Rivian or at GM or at Ford can't be the exact same level of good jobs that the manufacturing jobs have been. And that the UAW members, hundreds of thousands, millions of them have fought in huge strikes to protect. But we've got this entrenched business unionist leadership idea that organizing is we take a few like staff members who direct the whole thing from the outside, who don't have an inside knowledge of what's going on on the shop floor and don't have a direct connection with the people who are actually doing the work and that that's just going to magically work. And we've seen time and time again that it doesn't. And so like, th like this is why that we, you know, we have our little st segments where we're like, Hey, we recommend if you want more democracy, this movement like UAWD or the T TDU or some of the other ones in mm -hmm. other unions, they seem to be moving in that direction. And so, well, that's a big, this is a big part of why, because we want the UAW to be a strong fighting union. We're not out there like, oh, everybody should leave the UAW and form some new perfect union. Because uh, no, that's not what we're saying. It's like, we want the UAW to be better and we need them to stop banging their head against these walls mm -hmm. that they're not going to get through that way. So, well, and you know, if yeah. we aren't talking about the pitfalls of business unionism if we're not talking about <laughs> multi-tiered contracts if we're not talking about bullshit ideas of progressive companies if we're not talking about all of these incredibly vital things we are also known to talk about slavery modern day yeah. slavery and that's what we're going to talk about in this next story where we cover alabama uh, incarcerated workers who have gone on strike at multiple, multiple uh, prisons, in actually nine different prisons in Alabama. There are 13,000 incarcerated workers who have been working for free. For free. Like, that's not an exaggeration. They straight up are, are this is literal slave labor, and we're going to be going mm -hmm. over some of the actual conditions and what the demands of these workers are putting forward.
Yeah, Alabama is one of the seven remaining states that pays incarcerated workers literally zero dollars. And it's one of the remaining five states that officially forces them to work on threat of punishment. So uh, that's that's pretty uh, important to know when literally one percent of the state's population is incarcerated. Yeah, like because that's the thing, like when we talk about prison slavery, Pretty almost every state in the country employs prison slavery. I think it's technically banned in Colorado and is on the ballot in a couple other places. Mm -hmm. But essentially the entire U.S. carceral system is based on on prison slavery. But there are degrees (laughs) like of, of, of how low these workers are paid. And in Alabama, it's just straight up traditional slavery of you get paid nothing. And if you don't work, you get punished. Mm-hmm. So like that's dude, I don't there's no real other word to describe that other than slavery. And so yeah, these workers last Monday on the 26th launched a strike all across the entire uh Department of Corrections in Alabama and they uh put out a statement explaining what they're striking about saying, "Quote, the state of Alabama is in the midst of a humanitarian crisis due to Eighth Amendment violations." This crisis has occurred as a result of antiquated sentencing laws that led to overcrowding, numerous deaths, severe physical injury, as well as mental anguish to incarcerated individuals. This humanitarian crisis led to the Department of Justice filing suit against Kay Ivey, who's the governor of Alabama, and the Alabama Department of Corrections. Yet nothing has changed or gotten better, only worse. Therefore, for the sake of our lives, we are exercising our First Amendment right to peacefully protest this unconstitutional, unsafe, and hyper-exploitative system. We need help, and we need it now. End quote. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, the, the fact that America tries to tout that it's, that it's abolished slavery is a fucking joke. Uh, and and honestly, it's a joke at the expense of all of these people who are are... I, I it's so difficult to put it in perspective for people what it's actually like to for one even be in a carceral system in the United States although I bet a lot of people do understand that considering we have the largest prison population in the world uh but also just like what it is like to be forced to work for, and, and to sustain these what are often private businesses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now let's go over some of the demands that the that the striking workers have put together. It's a list of eight demands. The first one, and I guess I'm not going to number them, so I'm just going to go over them one by one, uh, is to uh, repeal the state's habitual offender law, the, streak, the, the three strikes law, immediately, make presumptive sentencing standards retroactive, repeal the state's drive-by shooting statute, Create a statewide conviction integrity unit to review cases where innocent people are locked up. Enact mandatory parole criteria so that there is a standard system via which incarcerated workers are granted parole rather than leaving it up entirely to the parole board's discretion. Uh, As a note on this one, Alabama's parole approval rate in 2021 was less than 20%, and black inmates are half as likely to receive parole as white inmates. Then the next one is streamline the process for parole for elderly individuals and the process for medical furloughs. Reduce the time juveniles are incarcerated for capital offenses before being eligible for parole from 30 years down to 15 years and end sentences 
of life without parole. And so many of these, we could we could go into deeper examinations. I think that the very racist way that the parole board works is a like a classic staple of our prison system. In the way that, for one, I mean, even uh, just the fact that black people are disproportionately incarcerated, they also are disproportionately forced uh, to to stay in prison and denied parole compared to white inmates and and just this this whole system being so absolutely broken and racist and 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 I guess maybe I I almost shouldn't say the word broken because it's designed to function this way. I mean, this is the reason why prison abolition is our path out of a system like this and and why we need to actually have ways in which we support people. I mean, people don't go to jail when they have the th- their their needs provided to them. I mean, unless yeah. they're I mean, I was going to say unless they're they're rich in which case actually they just do crimes and don't go to jail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's really hard to highlight any one of these as being the most important demand because these people are in such a terrible position that it's like every single one of these things is absolutely critical. Um, I'm I'm particularly impressed by the demand to create a statewide conviction integrity unit, uh, mm-hmm. and and so that the only groups doing that aren't like uh, NGOs and 501c3 is like the fucking Innocence Project or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, this this uh, worker strike has also uh, caused a huge disruption in prison services. So uh, they've had to have prison guards serve the food and maintain the prison, which I don't know if you've ever met a prison guard. Uh, the prison is being massively <laughs> neglected. <yes. laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not always a good time. Uh, and so they're basically just pointedly not providing these services at all in, as an attempt to break the strike. So uh, some of the prisons have also used work release prisoners as strike breakers and threaten to cancel their work release if they don't take the jobs that are normally worked by the strikers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause that's one of the things with the U S carceral system is it's set up to use slave labor. Like they don't have enough employees to run the system as it's set up because it's based on being able to extort free labor out of these prisoners. Right. And so the response from them has of course just been, Oh, all right, fine. You're on strike. Fuck you. We just won't give you, you know, the food and medicine and stuff that you need. So like, you you mean they don't just move you to the kitchen because they trust you around knives now? (laughs) What? Um, so like, uh, these workers, some of these workers were actually able to do an interview with unicorn riot, which, I mean, hell yeah, because I'm sure these folks have, like, the prisons have been doing their absolute best to keep any, you know, news from coming out about this. And they specifically talked about how this whole thing is, like, been planned from the get-go as a completely nonviolent action. Like, there's, they, they said, quote, no inmates have any kind of tensions with each other, and neither are we showing any kind of tensions with the authorities. It's simply saying that we are refusing to work because there's no reward, end quote. And they've, there have been a ton of, of pictures that I've seen of, of folks that have been posting from uh, across the whole network of, of prisons in Alabama on the, the quote-unquote food that they've been being given since this strike started, uh, such as giving workers a cheese sandwich as their whole meal, uh, like, which that's probably about 200 calories. So, mm-hmm. like, 
you give that to somebody three times a day, you gave them 600 calories for the day. Like that's nothing. Like they've, they've prisoners have been served uncooked hot dogs where the, 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 the guards just rip open a package, refuse to cook them and give them a, a completely uncooked hot dog. That's probably even, you know, a hundred times worse than the shitty hot dogs <laughs> that mm-hmm. like we often get like, um, and they've also been served like uncooked pasta, like, or just s- cereal poured onto a tray without even a bowl. That's <laughs> deranged. Like, it, it's, it's, in, it's, 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 it's uh, the contempt for the workers is obvious in the pictures of these food that, that, that people point out. Like the workers organizing committee has called for an end to this tactic of starvation, calling out Alabama direct uh, department of corrections, commissioner, John ham specifically for committing human rights violations, which I will say the only small lighthearted part of this story is that I was initially a little confused that actor John ham had a secret double life here <laughs> <You're right. laughs> as a prison warden in Alabama. Thankfully that's not true. Um, <laughs> it's a different John ham, but I mean, this is actually a very common tactic. Like starvation is one of the most common tactics used by prison guards against any sort of rebellion uh, or any really just any pushback against authority in prison. Like the Alabama political reporter cited a source at the Staten uh, or Staten uh, correctional facility who said, quote, our dog team captain is up and down the halls laughing about it, saying this will be over soon. We'll just sweat them out, end quote. So... You're not like sweat them. You're not in combat with them. You're not besieging a fortress. Like what the fuck? I, I, I know that they're prison guards and, and like as part of their job, they just kind of have a culture of being antagonistic towards the prisoners, but it's just really fucking disgusting to see that kind of like wartime language get used on people who are in jail for a crime that, you know, a lot of them probably shouldn't even be. Yeah. I mean, Prison guards alongside cops also, you know, tend to make up the the shock troops of of fascism. Yeah. And you can really see like how where that the connections and the ideology there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like there have been all sorts of other forms of retaliation against these workers, canceling of all programs of rehabil- rehabilitation and education, loss of access to telephones, loss of visiting privileges. Guards have also reportedly refused to provide striking workers with the medicine they need, even diabetics. Which what? So you're co- combining starvation with refusing to give people medicine. Like... Doesn't that I mean, violate, like, <laughs> the Geneva Convention or some other, yeah, like, yeah, fucking... I mean, it's, it's clear human rights violations like, and there's also been violent retaliation from the guards. One of the leaders of the strike, uh, a man named Robert Earl council was assaulted by guards and placed in solitary confinement after a video was released of him pointing out the horrific conditions faced by workers in the prison. Um, he was interviewed by unicorn riot before he, I believe it's before he was assaulted saying it makes no sense for us to continue to contribute to our own oppression. We finance our own incarceration through our free labor and spending every dime we get in their canteens and so forth. It is our money and our family's money that is used to keep us incarcerated and oppressed like this, which yeah, spot on. Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, absolutely and I mean, to, correct. To, to go to the point of like what it means to actually re- release people, I Dan had posted something from Twitter the other day uh, about uh, how during COVID, 11,000 federal prisoners were released to early home confinement and only uh, 17 reoffended at all 
almost all for just drugs, and only one committed a violent crime, aggravated assault, being has showing the violent recidivism rate at point zero zero nine percent, like under a fraction of a percent. Like yeah. these, they should should not be in prison. Prisons need to be abolished. No new prisons. No like fuck fuck them all. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, let's go to somebody who might have a level head about this. Let's find out what the state has been saying, uh, which is, uh, oh, I'm checking my watch. Uh, It's extremely racist (laughs) and condescending. So the communications director for the governor actually told reporters that the prisoners' demands are unreasonable and would not be addressed, which it's like... I think in a lot of states, the state government would try not to like talk about this, but in Alabama, it seems like they're just like, all right, send Jim out there to tell him absolutely fucking not. Uh, and then they turn around and they praise the governor's program of building even more prisons to lock up even more people using $400 million that they diverted from COVID relief funds, which is just like, uh, that's one of those sentences where it's like every word that comes out of my mouth, I get sadder and sadder and sadder. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's, and it's, here's the thing. Like, even if you think that prison abolition sounds extreme because, you know, it, cause look, people have questions about the concept because they're like, okay, I get it. Our system is fucked up and racist and based on slavery. We have to change it. We have to make major changes, mm-hmm. but like, what would we do? Fair. There are people who have answered that question and are much smarter about the issue than me. But one thing that I would point to you about, like, if you're concerned about the rising fascism in this country, (laughs) prison abolition needs to be high up on your fucking list. (laughs) Because, like, there is this economic incentive in the way that our system has financialized the suppression of surplus populations. Uh, and this is kind of a bit of a preview for a uh, interview we're going to be doing later, later this week, which is more about healthcare, but the prison system is tied into this whole thing uh, where they've figured out ways to make money by warehousing surplus populations. And so there's now this incentive, this disgusting incentive that only capitalism could create, whereby it becomes extremely profitable and a source of so-called good jobs to base the entire regions of this country's economy on imprisoning millions of people and then administering the services involved with their imprisonment. And it's the the whole system must be destroyed. Especially in some rural communities where they like to build these prisons, where these workers are basically, you know, uh, convinced that this is the only way they're going to get enough money to feed their families is to Mm -hmm. oppress other working class people and support the building of these prisons, which are, you know, in many ways, especially during COVID, though even outside of COVID, are death camps. Mm-hmm. These are places yeah. where people are warehoused and they are put in awful conditions where they are likely to receive uh, awful uh, adverse health conditions as well as in many in plenty of cases actual death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, and I mean it's there's the government and the private corporations are well aware of all the financial incentives. There's a reason that they keep plopping these prisons down in former coal towns, former logging mm-hmm. towns, depressed industrial areas, former office parks, whatever. And then like there's also the factor that ties back into like the rising creep of fascism, like you were talking about Dan, but in that these prisons also actively produce that ideology. Like I I'd, mm-hmm. I'd love to see in, in, in the the real picture in God eye of the Venn diagram between stormfront moderators and prison guards. I bet you yep. it looks pretty fucking round. 
Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. A hundred percent. Like it's cause I, the way that I think about it is like, you basically have like a, here's a, here's a factory, but that company left. Here's mm-hmm. a hospital, but a private equity firm shut that down. Mm-hmm. Here's, a call center that they moved somewhere else. And, oh, what do we do? Oh, shit, we got to keep these people from getting mad and, you know, voting for something that might actually help them. So we'll just drop this hive of that that just creates fascism mm-hmm. in their area and it's 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 like this bizarre form of carceral keynesianism where it's like we can we'll use public funding to create jobs but only in ways that also simultaneously produce death and lock people up for you know eternity yeah well like and that's what, it. what's the alternative to a prison in those situations it's usually a casino or a golf course and it's like every <laughs> yeah. single one of those is just one of the shittiest things you can fucking imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, and I think just to end off this story, because unfortunately with a lot of prison strikes, it's, you know, we don't usually have the, some incredible, inspiring, happy note to end these on. But I just think there was a quote here in this Unicorn Riot interview from a worker who's, who's an incarcerated worker going under the pseudonym Swift Justice, who said, quote, basically the message we are sending is, The courts have shut down on us. The parole board has shut down on us. This society has long ago shut down on us. So basically, if that's the case, and you're not wanting us to return back to society, you can run these facilities yourself. Yeah. I mean, wow. That's really real. I don't know what else to say about that. Yeah, I mean, hard to transition out of a story like that, uh, uh, unfortunately. Uh, because you know what? What else is there to say? Uh, abolish a, prisons now. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. just do a rough trend. We're gonna talk about Starbucks, folks. We're gonna yeah, it's work stoppage. Finish. Where would we be if we didn't do this segment? Speaking yeah. of other tyrants, <laughs> yes, Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as we mentioned last week, Starbucks made an abrupt shift in its stonewalling of the uh, union movement and has decided to begin bargaining with each store individually. While this is frustrating because stores, of course, are coordinating through their national organization, the union has called Starbucks' bluff this week uh, by unveiling their core bargaining proposal of uh, that workers have democratically agreed upon. And they're doing this by releasing a key demand every single day. In fact, there are a couple in here that, I mean, do we, do we want to quick add the ones from today? Or I, I like, just, I like just that they're the first week. I, I like I, I like that they're releasing them a day at a time. It's like a fun little union advent calendar. <laughs> it is. Uh, I yeah. figure we'll just do the ones from last week because they're going to do a whole week this week, mm-hmm. and we'll cover those on the next show. All That's right, my that sounds good. Well, the first one is the right to organize without retaliation. This would uh, this would be met by Starbucks by agreeing to the union's list of fair election principles that they have been asking the company to agree to for months. And if you've been following what we've been covering. Very often, that is one of the first things that the union will do is try to get the management to f- sign the fair election principles. As far as I can tell, they have never done it because they no. don't intend to respect the workers even a little bit. In the second demand, we've got non-discrimination, which is this demand centers uh, on workers. Uh, um, this demand centers on protecting workers from harassment, bullying, and all forms of discrimination. 
workers whose religious beliefs prevent them from handling pork would be provided protections from being assigned to such work without loss of pay or hours. Yeah. Um, And then the next demand was a proposal based on respect and dignity. Uh, That proposal would protect workers from verbal abuse, threats, and harassment of any kind by management, supervisors, or coworkers, proposing that discipline would be handled professionally and take place on the clock. Uh, which those are all really because like it's that's one of those things that I think sounds like very basic, but those are areas where you know the company always wants to have complete dictatorial control, mm-hmm. and so setting up this situation here where it's like, yeah, harassment protections are not just for other coworkers. It's like that also has to include you know management and and it has to actually be enforced. And we have to and be paid while you discipline us. You can't ask us ex- to see exactly. you after the shift. Um, then let's see the next one. This was probably the biggest, this is a really big proposal. And I know that, uh, a friend of the show, uh, Alicia, who we interviewed, uh, on our interview, you know, specifically about Starbucks workers United, which we unlocked last week. I know she played a role in shaping this, uh, policy and it's definitely one of the most extensive, which covers health and safety. It's actually a seven page long proposal talking about protecting workers from all sorts of things like specifically COVID by reinstating the COVID benefits that the company just cut implementing disaster emergency pay. So for instance, you know, if you're a worker at a Starbucks in say Tampa and there's about to be a gigantic hurricane, they actually have to shut down the store, but still pay the workers because it's not the workers fault that there's a fucking hurricane coming (laughs) and they still have to be paid because they still have to pay their bills, whether there's a hurricane or not. Yeah, you um, may consider it an act of God or something like that, but I still blame it on the fucking capitalists who burning our planet alive. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Uh, let's see. It also has protections for workers defending themselves against aggressive customers, which has been uh, that that problem has skyrocketed since the beginning of the pandemic. A uh, and a zero tolerance sexual harassment and assault policy. Uh, The policy would also provide for mental health resources, including paid time off for workers at a store that experiences an extreme traumatic event, which unfortunately, you know, when there's 9,000 Starbucks and they're open a lot of hours, that sort of thing does happen. It does confront workers uh, sometimes. Uh, And additionally, this one, I, this was probably the single most, the single concrete demand from this list that I found the most interesting which is it also recommends the formation of workplace health and safety committees at each store with a two-to-one employee-to-management makeup. Yes. Finally. Which? Finally, a fucking committee that isn't weighted in favor of capital. Yeah, like, that would be huge towards making the environment that Starbucks workers are involved in an actual safe and supportive working environment because it's a committee, again, as you said, that is controlled by the workers. Uh, so that would be an, an enormous change, uh, and and I think that's a really smart demand. And then the last one that they had on there for for last week was a proposal based on discharge and discipline. It would require just cause for any disciplinary action, not just being fired, and would set up a system for resolving disputes between union workers and management, which would include a system to wipe a worker's disciplinary record clean after six months. Hell and we've seen. Yeah. We've seen the way that these disciplinary records have been weaponized by Starbucks to push workers out by just making shit up or purposefully understaffing a store and then blaming the worker if stuff doesn't get cleaned, essentially setting workers up to get disciplinary actions on their record. And this sort of policy would prevent that sort of thing. So 
That's the, the list of, of proposals from the National Bargaining Committee that were revealed over the last week. There's going to be a whole other week of those this week, and so next week's episode, we will summarize those. But these are going to lay out the basis for a general contract structure for all the stores unionized under the Starbucks Workers United banner. And so, like, we're it's still unclear whether Starbucks actually intends to do any bargaining or if they just said that they want to do that so they can say, look, we had one sit down. See, we're bargaining in good faith. Yeah. Or if so, maybe they wanted to, they were kind of trying to see where they were at, trying to find out if they could get away with, you know, or right. uh, negotiating with each store individually. And I think uh, Starbucks Workers United has made it eminently clear that they're not going to be able to do that functionally, even if they are technically able to. Well, and I, I think generally this is just the perfect way to be like, look, we don't we don't know if Starbucks is serious about this, mm-hmm. but regardless, we can show that we as the union are serious about right. this. And like, look, we've got our demands. We're very clear on what we want. And it's simple stuff. It's like, of course, the company will portray it as extreme, but this is the sort of stuff that I think everybody wants at their workplace. This is some, so, I, I'm, I'm excited for the future demands because, I mean, this is the beginning. This is a really yeah. good start. Uh, and I mean, it continuing with the, the organizing campaign of Starbucks workers United, the, they are fighting back against the company's union busting on Thursday, September 29th workers at the Ansley mall location in Georgia went on a 24 hour strike in protest at the end of the COVID-19 protections without consulting the workers, as well as the company's refusal to speak with the store's bargaining committee. Workers also struck on Saturday, October 1st at the Shepherd Drive store in Houston that just unionized the previous week, uh, or I guess last week. Uh, workers struck for the day in protest of illegal retaliatory firing of over 100 Starbucks workers since the union drive began. And finally, union wins continue this week as well. On Tuesday, September 27th, workers at the 11th Avenue location in Greenlee, Colorado, won their uh, their union election 20 to 1 with Ooh. the fucking... <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> the Ithaca manager yeah. strikes again. Yeah, the motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on Thursday the 29th, New Mexico got its first uh, Starbucks union and the Rio Grande store in Albuquerque voted 10 to 7 in favor of the union. Also on Thursday, workers at the Westlake, Ohio Starbucks made the union 8 for 8 with union elections in Ohio when they voted to unionize. On Friday, workers at the 1429 Peace Street store in Washington, D.C. finally brought the union movement to their city and won their election 10 to 6. Hell yeah, I'd want a union too if I had to work on P Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was confused at first because i was like wait it's just peace it, does the p stand and then i remembered that that's how like a lot of the streets like, in dc are mm-hmm. it's like a street b street c street dave yeah e dave. that's my favorite when, when they do the avenues because then it's like uh a a v e bave yeah. cave dave and then they start to get a little nonsensical till you get yeah. to fave and gave right. uh, <laughs> right. ah, yeah, we started so, the meme review early folks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right oh man so i i brought this first one in here i mean people may have seen it going around i was just frankly so surprised to see what is basically a very typical boomer meme mm-hmm. type format 
that actually had a good fucking quote on it for a while. Yes. <laughs> this guy is carrying a fucking ton of chains around. This is a, a, a guy looks like the looking... freaking ghost of Christmas pass over here. <laughs> <laughs> he's got his hard yeah, like, hat. He's got his safety glasses. He's a, it's also in grayscale. So it's got this, this like mm-hmm. really kind of old timey look. Yeah, and then, like, superimposed over this picture of, like, what people picture when, if you say union member, this is what they think shows up in the dictionary. Yeah. Uh, and, And then it just says over it, I have never bought anything with money. Everything I have was bought with pieces of time I sold from my life to a job that will never have paid enough when my time is up. It's a poem, folks. Siri, play 16 tons. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Oh, and I guess thinking of uh, older uh, style, you know, stuff, I guess we're going to be going with a classic, uh, like, labor, what do you call it? It's just a single panel comic. Yeah, it's a political cartoon. And this is the International Teamster which is just a bunch of uh, fat cats sitting at a table, including one very small worker sitting at, the, at, at that same table. And the, the first person says, everyone must make sacrifices. And the three fat cats are uh, wage freeze advocates, speculators, and profiteers. Uh, this has really got big COVID hours on it. And then that person who's pointing to the everyone must make sacrifices is handing a plate with just two peas on it to wage earners while there is a giant chicken and a bunch of other fancy shit all over the table. Yeah, I, I mean, I I like because this is just it's so funny to go back and you see because I'm guessing this is from the 70s. Uh, because that's when you had a lot of arguments over wage freezes, wage price freezes mm-hmm. during the seventies inflation. Um, but you could use this like part of the a big part of the reason I put this in here is like you could publish this today and it would still be accurate because like how many times have we talked about the narratives around inflation right now where everybody's just like or just all the fucking people that show up in the comments every time I post something on Facebook about inflation and tell me, oh, don't you know that it's the government's fault for printing too much money? And I'm just like, <laughs> well, here's this chart that shows that corporate profits are at a record high. And here's all these links where all these CEOs are going on CNBC and being like, oh, man, we're making so much money. This rules. We're making inflation go up because we're raising profits. We are literally telling you that's what we're doing. And then the people will be like, no, inflation happens when the government spends money. Inflation's <laughs> natural. It grows out of the ground. Yeah. So that's but that's how people treat this. And so like this cartoon that's probably like 50 years old is still accurate because again, everybody you have like Biden's Federal Reserve jacking interest rates through the goddamn ceiling. You have the Inflation Reduction Act, which doesn't do anything to address inflation. Uh, meanwhile, we have rents and grocery prices and everything going through all the way to the damn moon. Where, and everybody's talking about like, oh, well, we spent those stimulus checks two years ago. That's why there's inflation. Yeah. And also, <laughs> I mean, like I, the wage freeze advocates, to me, that sounds like every single business, because as we always say, mm-hmm. a raise below inflation is is a pay cut a wage a, wa- a rise at inflation is a wage freeze and the only way that you get an actual raise is if it is over inflation 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know somebody who might want to tell you that real early in the morning. <laughs> uh, so the, the next like com- one? The, like this, this one's really fucking funny. Uh, the next this meme is a is, classic. This is a, yeah. It's a comic. Um, it's from Extra Fabulous. And it just has a happy little rooster out on like a, a, a fence post in the morning. And he just says, time for me to wake everyone up. And then you see a pig looking angrily out the window. Also, in this comic, everyone's left eye isn't on their face all the time. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and the pig's looking at him angry. And he says, here he goes again. And the chicken winds up or the rooster winds up. And he says, the proletariat shall labor in vain no longer. <laughs> and the pig's screaming at him. He's like, it's 6 a.m. And the rooster says, it's never too early to seize the means of production and you see the pig just <laughs> disgusted he's like oh and uh, uh, i like this comic because i am both of these farm animals <laughs> <laughs> oh definitely i love love waking up in the morning shouting about the liberation of, of the working class that's right um and so you know look what would a meme review be without bringing in something from <laughs> our friends uh, at the share zone admin of course always making bangers <laughs> you've got <laughs> so this has got, you know, just like a, a standard like office complex, but there's like also a bunch of smoke because there's a purple skeleton with a bong right in front of it. <laughs> and then it's captioned, I'm going above and beyond at work, Uh-oh. above 25% absence rate, huh? beyond three written reprimands. Hell yeah. <laughs> I love this. Oh. Like, you know, you think, oh, above and beyond at work. I don't know. We tend to advocate against that, you know. it's uh, Yeah, please say both of these nuts. Please. I'm begging <laughs> you. <laughs> above 25% absentee, absence rate and uh, beyond three written reprimands. So good. So good. And then, as I have been trying to do, is put a little bit of a lighthearted one at the end of the meme review so that we'd get the lighthearted part at the end of the lighthearted part at the end of the, well, <laughs> very long, slightly depressing episode. Uh, which, this is just a, uh, a, a tweet from Grace Seggers. Uh, it just says, I hope this email finds you. Living in a shotgun shack. I hope this email finds you in another part of the world. I hope this email finds you behind the wheel of a large automobile. I hope this email finds you in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? It's via <laughs> Union. Actually, I added that last part. But yeah, <laughs> I just I just like talking heads references. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Uh, I guess with that, we will wrap for the episode. We want to thank you all for listening. And if you would like to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash workstoppage. And then if you are a patron, you can message us for stickers. I am sorry to the two people who have messaged us recently. I have your envelope stamped right here. They are going in the mailbox tomorrow. Please forgive me. Right, a five-star review complaining about how slow I am about getting stickers in the mail. <laughs> Uh, and follow us on all of the different places, whether it be following John on Twitter at Facebook Villain, following the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. You can find all of our links at workstoppagepod.com and listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, listen to Red Game Table, and as always, abolish prisons, motherfucking, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, labor peace is That's not right. in our interest. Solidarity forever, y'all. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Solidarity.